0: Don't have to take off my uh, Stop Kinder Morgan t shirt. <laughs> <No.
1: laughs> this is Van Collar. We're at the West Coast. <laughs> My name is Mo Amir, and today on This is Van Color, I am joined by a returning guest, almost three years in the making, all the way from episode number four. This is someone who committed to being on the podcast before it was even a podcast. A lot has happened since then, obviously, in both of our journeys. But to refresh your memory, he has a PhD in World Cities from the London School of Economics. He's worked for the City of Vancouver and Park Board. He sat as a tenured professor at Simon Fraser University's School of Public Policy. He was twice elected as a Member of Parliament for the NDP. And of course, as elected in October 2018, he was the first Mayor of Vancouver to be unaffiliated with a municipal party in over 30 years. He is currently the Mayor of Vancouver. He is here via the magic of Zoom. He is Mayor Kennedy Stewart. Mayor Stewart, how are you? Hi, Mo. Great to be back. And it's been too long. Three years. Holy cow. (laughs) (laughs) Time flies, right? It does. Yes. Well, I'm happy to have you back. Thank you for your time. I appreciate your long-awaited return to the podcast. I have to get one thing straight, though. When you ran for mayor, you really emphasized your first name in the campaign. So, what do you prefer, Mayor Stewart, Mayor Kennedy, or just Kennedy?
0: You know, it, it's funny people reverse my names all the time. They call me Stewart Kennedy. They call <laughs> me Mister Kennedy. And like what I tell them, it's true. My mom named me, and she mixes it up. So <laughs> you know, whatever people want, uh, that's <laughs> that's fine with me. Uh, I you know, the name Kennedy is that was my grandfather's uh, first name as well. So uh, you know, it's got a special place in my heart. So. I don't know, whatever people want, I'm, I'm cool with it.
1: Okay. I'll try to stick to Mayor Stewart, but I might mix it up just for fun.
0: That's okay. I'll know, I'll know here. To, I know you're asking me a question though. Since exactly. Two of us here. I won't be looking over my shoulder.
1: So there is a lot that I want to discuss, but I feel like the number one hot topic right now in this city is safety in downtown Vancouver. You see it in the news media. People are discussing this online. It's become a real concern. More and more, we're seeing these reports from residents in Vancouver, particularly downtown, Yaletown, Strathcona, and we'll discuss Strathcona Park a little later, but residents are feeling unsafe in their own neighborhoods. Adrian Crook, a former Vancouver City Council candidate, a representative for BC Rental Project, says that over the last year or two, as a downtown resident, he feels unsafe, that anything can happen. He and many others claim that downtown Vancouver is more disorderly, more violent than it has been in a long time. So what is your take? Are parts of Vancouver more disorderly, more violent and more criminal than just a few years ago?
0: Yeah, I will uh, get directly directly answer your question in a second. Um, but uh, I would say actually the number one issue in Vancouver is COVID. <laughs> <And Sure.
1: laughs>
0: it, but I, but it's really important Uh to put what's happening in the context of covid and and so i'm i will get to your answer about how i feel about the you know what's happening on our streets in a second but um it, you know you know before uh, before covid the city was rated as one of the safest uh, cities in the entire world and it and it still is actually comparatively but but i do recognize uh, a change on our streets but what happened with COVID, you know, uh, just about a year ago, I, I declared the first state of emergency in the history of, of Vancouver, which was, I can tell you, not something that you do lightly. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you remember uh, back at that time, uh, Adrian Dix, Bonnie Henry and I, uh, Patricia, Dr. Patricia Daly were busy shutting down the bars and streets uh, around St. Patrick's Day. And then what happened is Bonnie Henry ordered uh, physical distancing rules with, with uh, about two meters, you know, um, and that's affected all of us. It's affected how we shop, how we see our families, but it's had a massive impact on the city. Sure. Um, really overnight, um, we have about 7,000 single room occupancy hotel rooms in the city. And those are the hotels that you'll drive by on Hastings Street, but other places. Um Prior to the physical distancing uh, orders, there was a guest policy. You'd be in your single room, which is super small. It's got a bed in it, you know, maybe a sink if you're lucky. It's got a shared bathroom on the floor. But they had a guest policy. Um, And with the physical distancing, that guest policy ended. Uh, At the same time, our shelters, which are often full, Uh, were reduced to about 30% of capacity. So what happened overnight uh, was that I would say between 1,000 to 1,500 people were driven out of their not great housing and onto the street. So you saw an immediate impact uh, on the ground. The second thing that happened was when we closed the borders, uh, it totally disrupted our local drug supply. Like most of our drugs uh, come across the borders from the U.S., and when we shut down the border, all of a sudden there is a mad scramble um, to to basically supply the needs of uh, almost a hundred thousand uh, injecting drug users here in British Columbia. Hmm. All of that had a massive impact uh, on the downtown east side and surrounding neighborhoods. So that that's why it's important to To understand what happened with COVID and our policy response to COVID caused a uh, massive disruption in kind of the life of the city, let alone parking and business and all that kind of stuff. But really, on on the folks that are in the worst shape, it had a huge impact as well. Our unemployment rate spiked in in last June to fourteen percent. Like that's unheard of here. It's usually mm-hmm. about four, three, four percent. spiked to fourteen percent. So then we had folks who lost their jobs, maybe lost their house, also landing on the street. So this, um, you know, this has been happening in cities all around the world. And so what happened is people, you know, the drug supply changes and becomes much more deadly, as you can tell by our increase in, in overdose deaths, you know, super tragic, but also it, it, it changed our city overnight and we've been scrambling to deal with it. Um, the, uh, so how do we deal with it? Uh, we deal with it by providing housing. We're a compassionate city. Uh, we always have been. Um, and so it's it's uh, it's trying to get more housing online. Uh, when people say, "Well, why didn't you move people from Oppenheimer Park into housing?" There wasn't any.
1: Mm-hmm. We
0: had decades of underinvestment by senior governments in housing. And uh, you know, mm-hmm. when I called Sandra Singh, the head of our. Uh, our community services here at the city. I said, "How many units do we have open? Zero. BC yeah. Housing, zero units. So, so no wonder there was a, a disruption, mostly in the downtown peninsula and connecting uh, connecting um, neighborhoods. Uh, so, what? So that also." Led to a change in our crime patterns. If if you go to the year end stats that the police produce, and I'm the chair of the police board, mm-hmm. I see these. Uh, you know, before you do, but they're they are published now. Uh, crime is down in almost every single category uh, across the city. There's been forty thousand fewer calls, nine one one calls, about a fourteen percent drop in rates. But uh, as and I agree with the chief, the crime patterns have changed. Uh, to be focused more in particular neighborhoods like the downtown, um, you know, Strathcona. But for much of the city, in fact, there's been a huge decrease in crime. So it really depends what neighborhood you live in. Uh, that will uh, that will inform your perspective. And for me, I live downtown, so I see uh, I see the changes every day. And uh, doing our best to try to mitigate this, what I would describe as a hurricane. We're in the middle of a hurricane. And we just got to steer our boat through this until we're we got the needles in the arms and we're vaccinated and we can reduce those physical uh, distancing um, measures.
1: And I guess what I'm getting at is I I understand the homelessness issue and we'll get to that. But is the sentiment that crime is exploding in Vancouver? Do you think that's overblown? I mean, you do you see the media reports and you see sort of the sentiment that a lot of people are expressing. Do you think it's uh, misguided? You know, uh, the statistics don't bear it out. I think that's important. So you can go right on the
0: Vancouver uh, Police uh, website. You can see a comparison with the year before. And, you know, it's pretty simple. There's red arrows and green arrows. Red arrows mean a a particular category of crime is going up and a green arrow means it's going down. And almost Hmm. every single category of crime, it's green arrows. Hmm. there's There's a big drop. However, the intensity of some of the incidents... Uh, the intensity of of what's happening in Strathcona Park. Um, And I think that uh, people's own lives have changed. You're not going back and forth to the office. So you're more at home. You're seeing more of what's happening around your, in your neighborhood. You're paying more attention to that has led to, I think uh, um, a a different uh, feeling among many people, especially in neighborhoods
1: where you're seeing, uh, you know, more, more folks living on the street and in parks. Is this why you voted to freeze the police budget at about $341 million instead of going with the city staff recommendation or the VPD recommendation to increase the police budget by $2 million or $3.5 million respectively? Because I feel like there are a lot of Vancouver residents who, again, maybe it is perception, maybe it's all of these different factors, but there's a lot of Vancouver residents who say that, you know, we need safer streets.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I'll I'll tie. I mean, it's quite a different topic and requires a little different explanation. So I hope you'll bear with me here. But Please, um, sure. it does it does co- co- um, come back to COVID. Uh, at the beginning of COVID, um, you know, I was on calls with mayors across the country around the world, and we were having a like like other businesses, a massive revenue drop at the beginning of of twenty twenty one. We had mm-hmm. or sorry twenty uh, beginning of the pandemic. Uh, we had. Um, uh you know we've done our research and we were expecting a, a massive property tax uh commercial and, and residential property tax default rate our revenues uh had were declining like nobody was parking downtown nobody was using the closed community centers like all those sources of revenue uh were drying up and mm-hmm. so we were in a all cities across canada uh were and around the world were facing uh like a financial crisis uh and you know we didn't know at that point at the beginning of the pandemic what um how this was gonna go uh yeah. so you know we all had to rein in uh we had to say well we're not allowed to run deficits right so we we had to uh take drastic measures here in the city. So unlike other governments, uh, you know, we have a workforce of about 10,000 here in the city of Vancouver. We had to lay off 1800 people Hmm. like basically overnight and and thank goodness for the unions. I mean, they were willing to work with us, but if you did that at any other time, you would have massive strikes in your city. So, Mm we we also uh, reined in our capital spending uh you know so we had to delay some capital projects we also had you know council uh and senior management all took 10% pay cut so that's how we were dealing with this crisis. at At that point, we couldn't. Um, we couldn't. We didn't know that the province wasn't really going to send us any money to help. Uh, we did convince the federal government to send us some money that had never happened before in the history of the country, money directly from the federal government to municipalities who were experiencing operating uh, deficits. So um, you know that was the context in which we were making decisions about city budgets, um, and so a lot of departments uh, were cut. Um, and we decided uh, the best thing to do is really to keep things stable within the within the VPD uh, until um, until we hit smoother economic times. So. There was a lot of stuff around defunding the police and all that kind of stuff with George Floyd and, and what was happening in say in U.S. states, especially like um, uh, Portland and, and Minnesota, mm-hmm. uh, but that really didn't enter into the discussion. The discussion was all about you know fiscal um, fiscal health and uh, that's what was driving those decisions. I mean, when we're all in the middle of a hurricane, we all got to pitch in here. And so, um, so that's really what was behind it. Uh, you know, and again, when we look back, uh, the police had 40,000 uh, 40, fewer call calls, and so there was an ability to redistribute uh, the, uh, you know, 1,000 plus officers that we have here in the city that do uh, consume about 20% of our entire operating budget mm-hmm. to uh, to deal with the issues at hand.
1: And I'm sure some people are going to point at the budget surplus <laughs> that the city recently uh, has, but... I think it's fair to say that, you know, given the time and, and not knowing what was going to happen, you know, you guys took all precautions to make sure that well, you weren't we weren't going to we, be uh,
0: <laughs> That That surplus wasn't like crying wolf. And then all of a sudden here, Hey, we have a lot of money. You know, we, we did lose $89 million in revenue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we did have to lay off 1800 people. We did have to close a bunch of things. Like that's why we're in the shape we're in. We still had to spend reserve money. Like, mm-hmm. The city budget isn't just one big pool of money you can draw from. Uh, so, yeah. for example, some of our money is allocated towards capital projects and, you know, it, it's kind of complicated. But a lot of it's, let's put it this way, a lot of it's already spoken for.
1: Mm-hmm. So
0: when some people say, oh, you're sitting on a billion dollars. Well, that's because it's tied up in property. It's it's already mm-hmm. in assets or it's, you know, it's put to, we're fixing the Granville Street Bridge right now that requires money in the bank to do that. So, right. so it, it's not, you know, you do see the, the kind of surface commentary you get sometimes, but that's, uh, I would, I would really ask people to, to take it. If you're going to, you know, understand the budget, it, it's good to go through the, the financial documents in detail. So again, this year is going to be really tough too. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we can't run deficits and really our property taxes is what drives our operational budgets. And so that, um, you know that's uh, that's that, that's always the case, and and we're going to have tough decisions again this year in uh, for the 2022 budget.
1: So let's talk about the tent city in Strathcona Park, and I think you've already begun to explain how we got here. But I think it's fair to say it's a it's a complicated situation. Oh yeah. I want you to take me through it, Cole's notes version, and I know you touched on a lot of it just now less editorializing, more matter of fact, as you understand sure. it. Give me an overview of how Strathcona Park became the largest tent city in Canada. Yeah. So, um, it,
0: it starts, it starts back to many over the last many years where we've had it under investment in social housing. And, you know, what does that mean? Well, just to put it in context for your listeners, um, one unit of social housing costs about $250,000 to build, and that doesn't even include the services that are connected to it. So it's really expensive. And, you know, the federal government got out of the housing investment game, the provincial government got out of it, and it's only recently that we've started to fill the backlog. So, so when people, you know, when you see somebody who's living on the street and you say, well, the, the city should put that person, you know, get that person at home, there are none so mm-hmm. we have to build them um and so uh so that's the context of moving first into Oppenheimer park right Oppenheimer park uh which was you know really started to get to its height at the beginning of covid uh we needed uh investment from the provincial governments uh, federal governments to to get us some housing to 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 make sure we can humanely get these folks into a better situation and that's what happened shane simpson who was the provincial minister at the time, we formed a partnership uh, and we were able to secure that housing. Um, The the other player in this is the park board who under the Vancouver charter has absolute and all jurisdiction over all parks in the city. Um, Mm -hmm. In some ways that's a good thing because we have one of the best park systems in North America to their credit. The tough side of it is when harder issues like uh, homelessness and encampments hit a park board, um, you know that's not really what they signed up to do, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> park board. Park board uh, commissioners get paid really a voluntary level salary, um, and this is re- so that that's the kind of conundrum of the park board in Vancouver, and we're the only uh, we're the only city in the in the country with an elected park board. So, mm-hmm. so it does mean though that power over things like injunctions solely rests with. The park Board and, and other people will tell you different but that is I can show you the the clause in this the city charter where it says that so in the Oppenheimer um when Oppenheimer started uh you know I I had a press conference where I said to the uh, Park Board look if you turn the jurisdiction over to us then we'll put forward a plan in place to to kind of move this along and working with the province and that was rejected. Uh, the park board said, "No, we want to keep control of our jurisdiction, and we'll and we'll we'll uh, we'll deal with this." Um, so that's fair enough. So I knew then if my job wasn't to look at the legal aspects of the park, my job was to go off and get a ton of money. Um, mm-hmm. And I and that's what I did. I've so far secured in my mandate over a half a billion dollars in housing investment from senior governments, uh, and that's never happened. Like I. There's an advantage of having a former MP as your mayor. And that is not only do I know the institutions, I know the people. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I can, I can talk, you know, I've got, I still got my little pin. I have all the access to the house of commons, um, you know, corridors. I can walk right by the security and I can go meet with ministers. And that's what I did prior to COVID. I said, we need a massive influx of, of, uh, housing investment here, um, The prime minister in a speech committed to, and in his platform, uh, committed to cut street homelessness in half right across the country, and then we just had to figure out how to get the money to us. And so that's what I've been working on, is having these uh, meetings with ministers, uh, and it's resulted in a massive investment. Um, So when when Strathcona Park happened... Uh, you know, you leave the you leave the the injunction side of it decision to the park board because it's their jurisdiction. You talk to the province about wraparound services for housing, and then you go to the feds and say, "Give us some money." So, um, you know, our council stepped up in August and approved uh, thirty million dollars for uh, of city money, you know, property tax money to use to buy housing mm-hmm. or refurbish housing. Uh, the feds. Gave us fifty million dollars. Uh, Ahmed Hussein, uh, the uh, the new housing minister, created a brand new fund and gave the city of Vancouver fifty million dollars to put directly into housing. The province came along and added about, I'd say, maybe around two hundred million dollars. And now, you know, it's not quick to build a place, so we we had to go buy hotels. Uh, we had to go look at buildings that were vacant that maybe need to be refurbished. So, like the Army and Navy, right? Mm-hmm. That was empty. So, it's a matter of purchasing it and making it, you know, put sprinklers in it, to make it COVID friendly, and that takes a bit of time. So, you know, it's easy to say people aren't doing things, but but I think, uh, and I think there's a lot more to come. And uh, next week, you're going to see, uh, I think, uh, something that's going to make lots of folks. Uh, pleased about how we're moving ahead, but, but look, I acknowledge in the Strathcona community that that things haven't been fast enough, um, partly due to COVID and partly because of underinvestment, um, not because that we don't care. Um, I went mm-hmm. met and went. I met with uh, local residents about you know uh, what was going on there. I talked with the with the chief of police to make sure we get extra patrols in those areas where they were needed, but really it. If, I, if I'm going to zoom out, there's kind of two ways of dealing with homeless encampments. The first is the Oppenheimer way, where you partner up uh, and you get the funds you need to move people into housing, and the other is the Crab Park way, where uh, the federal government that owns Crab Park uh, decided to overnight get an injunction, um, and the co- the police have no, uh, they don't really have any leeway when a court orders an injunction. They have to go in and do their job and enforce an injunction. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's what happened in Crab Park. And then everybody landed in Strathcona overnight with no plan. So, you know, so you hear a lot of folks saying, well, you know, the park board should have put an injunction in day one, you know, so I I don't believe in sending police in and arresting folks that are homeless that are really down on their luck that might've just lost their job and not have anywhere to go. Like what's that solve? Nothing. It's not like you arrest them and put them into a, a new housing, uh, unit you arrest them and then turn them back on the street like that's just dumb and it's a very old approach so uh, but it's hard to get that across when people are feeling so much stress
1: sure and so i just want to clarify when we go back to oppenheimer park you talked about minister bc minister shane simpson and bc yep. housing housing the residents in that park so yep. they were housed and i just want to be clear if this is the timeline covid hit we had an encampment in crab park after COVID or was that before the pandemic? It was, it was, uh,
0: after Oppenheimer park. Okay. Uh, and that was fenced off. What happened is another encampment started to grow in, in crab park.
1: Were they residents from
0: Oppenheimer? Some were. Um, what my understanding was 90% of the people in Oppenheimer actually got into a modular housing unit or okay. a, or another social housing unit. But, you know, COVID created this huge other need. Um, you know, again, during that month when, when Crab Park was starting to, to fill up with folks, it was our unemployment rate was 14%, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's really an unheard of. That's a, kind of a depression level of unemployment. And if you remember, um, the, the federal um, benefit programs hadn't really kicked in yet. So that's why everybody was freaked, right? They were losing their jobs like, oh, I work at this restaurant. Oh, man, it's closed. I don't have any savings. My rent's too high. Boom you know, you're homeless. Um, and mm-hmm. so we would talk to whole families that were staying in tents that were just, I had a construction job, it fell through, I burned through my savings and here I am in the park. And it's hmm. really scary here. That's, yeah. so that's, um, that's what happened. So then Crab Park grew and the feds didn't talk to us, the port of Vancouver, just, they got an injunction and boom, it, it all landed in Strathcona with no plan.
1: Right. So then you got this influx of again uh, up to 1500 new homeless people you were saying yeah and that's a, effectively how Strathcona Tent, on, City on top
0: of the 2000 we had from the prior uh, homeless count right. i mean that's so you're you know you're you're adding maybe 50 to 75 percent more folks living on the street basically overnight and that okay. you know but it, it, it that's not a detail that people want to hear right that I get it. People want results. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That's what people want in the city.
1: No, it's fair. But I also think it's important to understand how we got here. And and, again, it's every city. I talked
0: to Lisa Helps in Victoria, you know, the mayor there, it's the same thing there. It's the same in Nanaimo. It's the same in Toronto, Montreal. Like it's, it's, everybody's been impacted by physical distancing.
1: One thing that those cities in Canada, at least are not impacted by is park board and I'm just wondering how much of this issue in terms of being able to move on it, especially in your role as mayor is obstructed by having park board have jurisdiction over Vancouver parks and beaches.
0: I mean, I did uh, talk with uh, the, the parks commissioner uh, like often we have, I have regular meetings with the head of the school board, with the head of the park board. And this is of course an issue we we go through and, um, this is an extraordinary time first state of emergency everybody was scrambling um you know and and it, it's part of our governance fabric uh here it's 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 why i think parkboard is why our parks are so awesome compared to other cities but mm-hmm. but also when we get hit with a crisis it it brings a new level of complexity that we just have to work through mm-hmm. so i don't i never saw it as uh, i, I I I never saw it as like a hindrance. I just saw it as I have to understand what my role is, and if my role isn't to deal with the um, if if my legal you know uh, my legal obligations or my legal authority doesn't extend to injunctions, what I should double down on is going off and getting money. And the, the park board vision was always we'll put an injunction in if we can guarantee that these folks have a place to go. Which mm-hmm. seems like a reasonable thing. Sure. Uh, so my job go off to get the money and I did so that I feel like, you know, it just takes a little bit of time to execute this. And I got to tell you, working with David Evie is just a dream. Like I, I've worked with a lot of ministers in my life and he is, he is on this. He has got, uh, he understands it and uh, he's delivering. So uh, I, I think with all of us working in tandem, we're going to see a big difference, but I do appreciate it just hasn't been fast enough for people.
1: And so when we talk about the money that's being committed from the province and the federal government, has that money reached the city? Because you often hear that thing about the federal government in particular, that they commit money, but then, you know, it's it's tied up somewhere or it's not got through. So all that money that's being committed, it's reached the city?
0: Yeah, you're totally right. Ottawa is a very theoretical place like, and <laughs> spending uh, seven years sitting on the benches there. It's like, let's fix homelessness. Okay. Here's like $5 billion. Okay. Our job's done. Like that's, and the city is a very nuts and bolts place. So mm-hmm. uh, to answer your question, yeah, the condition on this new housing fund is that it had to be spent within 12 months. Like we, mm. could, and this is what we worked out with the housing minister. Like don't the federal housing minister don't give us money that will languish like force us to go uh and this it wasn't just spent it had to be inhabited so this is why we okay. went off to buy hotels because what can we buy that's already built um right or modular housing so that's also been an investment so that was you know that's us all working together to recognize the, the scope of the problem and what has to be fixed now we just have to have neighborhoods uh, understand that if you want folks off the street, they have to go somewhere. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and this is the thing. We all got to come together to, to address this uh, critical issue.
1: Now, BC Housing, the BC government has said that Strathcona Park will be cleared by the end of April. Yeah. From your understanding, is that realistic? Because, of course, you also have a responsibility to make sure that target is met.
0: Yep, absolutely, um, and you'll see more on that. I can't tell you about it right now, but you will see something this week on on this. Uh, I know it's Saturday afternoon, but this week you will see uh, you will see uh, something this week on this that, that kind of further solidifies that commitment. I'm presuming
1: um, it's a similar deal to what David Eby struck with Victoria. Can't really know <laughs> all the stuff in
0: camera, so I can't really talk about uh, you know those kind of negotiations. But you will, uh, you know, my hope is that we'll. Uh, see some news uh, over the coming week that this this uh, will be moving forward. Um, but I can say, you know, regardless of of uh, those kind of things, uh, we are securing the housing. We we uh, we are getting the wraparound services in place. We're making the agreements with the nonprofit associations. Like it is, it is all moving. So it's gonna it's gonna happen by the end of April. Yeah, I mean, you know. Uh, Minister EB set the deadline. I said, what can I do to get this going and to meet this thing? And I feel like we're all walking in lockstep and I've got great hope. I mean, half the park now is is already being, uh, you know, kind of re- redone. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's a good sign. But there's a, my concern is always the people in the park, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, these folks are in tough shape and they're often miscategorized as activists who don't care. I mean, that's not that's not true. These folks are in, in trouble and they need our help.
1: Mm-hmm. In retrospect, and I think you've done a really good job explaining the factors that, that led to the park. And again, it's complicated. It's yeah. a buildup of uh, historical events that kind of led to this. But in retrospect, would you have done anything differently?
0: Um, I, I mean, that's an interesting question. If I had if I had authority, like if, if, if the park, you know, if we had control over parks, I think it would have been a slightly less complicated negotiation Uh just because it would be three parties rather than four feds province city park board.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It would have just been feds province and us. Um, So this is why I think, for example, you see Victoria moving ahead a little faster, but on the other side of it, um, you know, I love how our parks are in the city and I, I don't, i don't know if if that would have been different so um yeah i i don't know what i could have done differently i i mean i pushed the feds to get the money as quickly as possible i did get our i i think probably i might have pushed council a little earlier to get the 30 million dollar commitment maybe maybe we could have done it a month earlier but but mm-hmm. the housing still wouldn't have been built you know so perhaps fill people in a little bit better about the context but I didn't really feel like people wanted to hear it at that point. They just wanted action. So, sure, yeah. So I I'd have to think about that, and <laughs> I, you know what I, you know what I was really afraid of is doing Crab Park. I was really afraid there was a ton of pressure just to get an injunction and have co- You know, the vision I always have in my head is cops riding through a park on horseback, forcing people out of their, te- you know, that kind of thing. And mm-hmm. there was a lot of kind of gnashing of teeth and pretty nasty stuff that was being said about people in a very vulnerable situation. And, and um, you know, I was kind of busy pushing back against that and trying to get a more reasoned let's get people in homes uh, approach, which is always how I think.
1: So you mean you didn't want a
0: recreation of crab park? Absolutely not. I mean, there was a ton of pressure to say, well, let's just move everybody to the new hospital site. Right. And then, like this kind of snap your fingers and it could happen, but these are people, right. They have constitutional rights. You can't just round people up and put them in like some kind of, I don't know, uh, you know, one of these refugee camps or one of those Texas border U S camps. Like, I mean, there was a lot of that kind of pressure coming, which is really, you know, kind of turns my stomach. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's really trying to get these people back on track and, and help them. Um, and that's why I don't like it being characterized as quote-unquote clearing a park. Mm-hmm. I think it's about helping people, um, but not everybody shares my perspective on that.
1: Fair enough. Now, you've made your case. I want to give a case that a critic made uh, against you. Critics? I don't <laughs> have critics, do I? <laughs> uh, just a couple of the city, I think. <laughs> George Affleck, former NPA City Councilor and now columnist at Vancouver's Awesome has said that you've done nothing on this file for two years. His argument is that in June 2020, the court said that the city and park board do not need an enforcement order in order to carry out an injunction, and it is your responsibility to keep people safe in Vancouver. He says you are beholden to supporters who see the tent city as a legitimate protest, thus turning your back on Vancouver residents. Reading between the lines, I'd suggest, you know, maybe he's gunning for your job next year. What is your response to Mr. Affleck that not only have you done nothing on Strathcona Park, but you indeed are complicit in such a way that 10 cities will continue to pop up again and again, no matter how many times BC Housing houses 10 city residents?
0: So uh, just to get this clear, I've never met Mr. Affleck, but is this the same guy who lost in the last provincial election,
1: running for the BC Liberals? I believe that is correct. Yes. Right.
0: So, so a failed BC Liberal provincial candidate is criticizing me. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so I don't know if I'd call him a columnist if that's if that's the case, but that's you know your discretion. Uh, my my response would be, hey, you know, if the BC Liberals had invested in in. Uh, you know, uh, social and supportive housing uh, through their whatever it was, sixteen years in office, uh, we wouldn't be in this situation. And thank goodness we have a provincial government that is doing that now, uh, because cities can't carry this load on their own. Uh, he's just totally flat out wrong about uh, the injunction power, and I mean he should know better. He's uh, he's been a councillor. He's read the uh, he's read the Vancouver Charter. So whatever. I mean, you know, uh, uh, I guess opponents are going to say all kinds of things. I, I I do agree though that people are completely frustrated what what doesn't help is kind of uh, misinformation and that's what I kind of see in those comments
1: so you think his criticism that I've just outlined the argument that I've outlined is misinformation
0: his it's factually incorrect uh, and he knows better so I guess that um, that would be categorized as misinformation like you can talk to Adam Palmer, or you can talk to David Eby, the Attorney General. Uh, you know who would all say the city does not have the power to put injunctions in on parks because of the can't remember what clause it is in the charter, but that's that's the case. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, and he would know better because he was a counselor for a few years, I guess, and um, so. I mean, uh, you know, and I think it's important to deal from the fact side of it. I think the criticisms from everybody that this is a very tough situation and we want it solved quickly is legitimate. But, you know, I mean, um, if Mr. Affleck wants to be mayor, then he should put his money where his mouth is and run. Uh, and then we can debate this on a stage during the next election. I'd be happy to do so and defend my record, which I think has been, you know, decent in,
1: uh, in the midst of a hurricane they call COVID-19. I think a lot of people are looking forward to that, but we'll move on. I I want to talk about city permitting. Okay. Businesses, developers, other organizations have long complained that the city of Vancouver is slow moving and archaic when it comes to permitting. The bureaucratic maze is confusing and ultimately bears a lot of unnecessary costs. My friend at CKW, Linda Steele, has famously complained that it took about eight weeks just to renovate her closet a couple years ago. This permitting bottleneck was best represented recently by the Greater Vancouver Food Bank's industrial location on Thornton Street. It was formerly a Greyhound bus depot. I mean, we don't have to get into the details, but the food bank was paying rent since October 2020. There's been some back and forth with the city. They still haven't gotten their permit. And then when they do, they need another two months to actually build it out. We do have other cities in the metro that do this so much easier, so much quicker, and I understand that the city of Vancouver is a much different beast altogether, but why do things take so long to get permitted? Is it a lack of staff? Is it too much staff in terms of task duplication? Is it archaic technology? What is the problem here?
0: Yeah, I think... uh this has been going on forever in the city of Vancouver, like it, it has been a very long term problem. And I completely agree with the critics. Um, what I don't want to do is, is pile this all on staff and say it's, you know, it's definitely not lazy people or anything like that. We've got a great staff at the city. It's really the systems. Um, so what's happened in the city for a very long time is uh, there's been policy piled on policy piled on policy and We're the only municipality in the province that doesn't have an official uh, community plan. Every other uh, municipality is ordered to do so, which gives you a fairly straightforward, um, uh, you know, zoning schedule for folks to follow. Uh, Vancouver is entirely complicated. Uh, I think I was talking to Councillor Michael Weed the other day and he said, one piece of land had 73 overlapping policies. So you can imagine that you know, those are spread across departments, how um, how complicated that is. And again, to bring COVID in, I think what, what COVID did was, uh, A, force everything online, like mm-hmm. nobody was working in their offices, so everybody had to do things from home. That's led to some innovation. And we have Jesse Adcock, who is uh, the head of our permitting, a, a, a new a fairly new head of our um, permitting uh, uh, department uh, who was brought in uh, from the Royal bank, um, you know, to bring a private sector lens on this. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, what happened was when we went from, you know, lining up to get your permit stamped by somebody at a desk to online uh, mm-hmm. online processing, uh, stamp, uh, staff just got overwhelmed, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, just 24 um, seven, you know emails now of Mm -hmm. uh so it's really a systems problem not a personnel problem and so it's not from my understanding hiring more staff it is streamlining our processes so um that again you will see that this week on council um there is a number of ideas floating around by counselors uh i have one that i'll be uh, sharing this week uh, and um, that will move some way to well move to address this. I, I have been uh, actioning on this already when it comes to the uh, building side of things. Um, I asked a pretty simple question, How many rental buildings are stuck in our system? Mm-hmm. Um, and And I ordered this uh, basically a backlog inventory to be produced and given to council. Uh, we're having a briefing on this this week, but I've had a preview and my jaw just hit the table. Like we're in the middle of a housing crisis where we've got to be building, like building, 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 like there's no tomorrow. And um, we've got all this private capital, you know, we're 95% of our housing market is privatized. So, you know, it's going to be private capital that's going to build this stuff. It's it's stuck. And Thank goodness we've uh, now got uh, Teresa O'Donnell in as our interim head of of planning because uh, what she did in Dallas when she was the head planner there, exactly what she did is revolutionized their planning uh, and development system, moving mm-hmm. it from a paper-based to electronic. So I think with uh, uh, Teresa O'Donnell and with Jesse Adcock, we have the right leadership team in place now uh, who have very good ideas on and experience in how to modernize this stuff, um, and so uh, you know, this week uh, there'll be a, a decision about how to move forward on this, and I think folks will be pleased with with what comes out of it. Uh, I had great discussions with the Board of Trade, with you know, major uh, development associations about. About what this is doing to our city, and I think that it's actually causing quite a sharp, one of the reasons why the cost to buy and the cost to rent is is so high,
1: mm-hmm. it,
0: it's, it's directly causing pressure on, an upward
1: pressure on prices. And so we'll get into the approval of, of rezoning applications in just a minute, but... Yeah. When it comes to permitting in general, and you know whether it's a renovation or outfitting a building for your business or whatever it is, it sounds like streamlining that process has only just started. Like, was anything done beforehand to try to make this easier?
0: There's been a lot of work that's been done. I mean, as soon as uh, Jesse Adcock was brought in to do this, that was really what she was tasked to do, and so Mm -hmm. there's been a tremendous amount of work. It's just you know, a lot of this is cross department stuff. So there's a, you know, there's a business license, permits and business licensing department with a general manager. There's a engineering department that's tied into this. There's the planning department, there's environmental departments, like it's, it's really pulling all these folks together and basically, I mean, it's, it sounds really trite, but it's cutting red tape, but it's going to, council is going to have to make some tough decisions about these overlapping policies, like which mm-hmm. one trump other ones. And that's part of the problem. So for example, you can have a brand new rental tower that is uh, ready to go. It's uh, you know, design is perfect. There's even affordability built in, but because it casts a one foot shadow on the park, it stops. And mm-hmm. then you have to work out all that stuff. So so the, really what council's decision mm-hmm. needs to be is We don't have a shadowing crisis, (laughs) we have a housing crisis so but it takes the council authority really to override a previous policy and that's, that's our job is to decide what are the priorities and I would say, you know, renters in the city want to be able to buy, uh, or they just want to be able to afford where they're living. Or perhaps you know move their family from a from a studio rental to a one or two bedroom rental, and and that's really got to be our primary focus is is getting that uh, getting that affordability in place.
1: But again, just going back to the the permitting in terms of like renovations or yeah. again outfitting a an existing building, not changing the building itself, but outfitting it so it can suit the needs of a new business. Well, here's a a radical
0: idea that I've been working on, and I haven't presented it to council, is that in Germany, many other European countries, a lot of U.S. states, um, there are time limits. So if you apply to renovate uh, Linda Steele's closet, uh, there is a time limit that the minute your application is complete and goes in, the clock ticks, and if staff doesn't get back to you within 30 days in Germany, you're automatically approved. Is that something we can see here? Well, I'm exploring it. now. I have to make sure that it's legally feasible because that's a big deal. Like our charter it outlines, um, you know, our legal constraints of what we can do. And if it's not, then I have to go to David Eby and I have to go to minister Osborne and say, we need a charter change in order to do this. Mm-hmm. So that's why research is important because it's not just clicking your fingers. There are, you know, uh, for example, again, to go back to the housing side, like, approving a rezoning is actually quasi judicial. It's like going into a court, right? Because there's so much money involved. So, you know, I think we've been making some good moves on automatic permitting approvals. Like a lot of people don't know that. That is actually happening. Like you you fill it in online and boom, you got it without a review. Hmm. Like that's starting to happen. But I sit every Friday morning at seven, I meet with uh, mayors across BC, big city mayors, you know, Surrey, Victoria, Prince George, 13 of us sit around and it's the number one problem in all of these municipalities like Surrey and uh, Doug McCallum has his uh, teams double shifted at the moment and still mm-hmm. isn't keeping up with this. So uh, this is a kind of a system wide problem, but Vancouver has got to lead the way in fixing this. Um, and uh, again, this week you, you, you've caught us on a good week <laughs> this week. You're going to see, uh, I think, uh, a, a very solid plan for uh, really supporting our staff to to get this worked out and then forcing council to make some pretty tough decisions about prioritizing need. Sure.
1: Now, moving on to the process of city council approving rezoning applications, which you've yep. touched on already. You know, you have a real estate uh, owner, developer. They have a plot of land only zoned for single-family homes or a four-story building. And they want to make that building eight stories or whatever, larger than what it's currently zoned for. Regardless of how anyone feels about development, I think the public hearing process takes up so much time, like long days. And often we're not even talking about a ton of units. Clearly, this is not an efficient use of council's time. I mean, this process sounds broken to me and outdated for a city like Vancouver. So how do we fix that? Is is that sort of what you're talking about in terms of new processes that we'll see? Or is this the, the Vancouver City plan that we're discussing?
0: So I, I, I've had a lot of time to think about this because I chair every single one of these public hearings, <laughs> right? And I, mean, I don't I'm, envy you. <laughs> well, you know, it, it it gives you some time to reflect on what the purpose of this thing is. And the purpose is really that you're a democracy, Mm-hmm. And that people have a right to state their opinions and you need to create forms for that to happen. So, like, in principle, I think these things are very important. Um, now, the other thing I think about is, as I'm sitting through three days of public hearings about a five-story building, is that, okay, that was three years of my life, I'll never, or three days of my life, I'll never get back. Uh, but the other thing I think about is the four years that project took to hit council. So if you really talk to somebody that a developer or builder that's making one of these things, if you could shave a year or two off the time it takes to get to council three days, doesn't seem like anything. Hmm. Right. And I, I really think this is the, it like the public hearing process is only the tip of the iceberg. <laughs> when you look below the waterline, it is the time it takes for these projects to, to get to council for consideration to have the debate. Now, Why that happens is the culture of the city of Vancouver is this. Planners do not want to bring anything forward to council that's going to fail, right? Mm -hmm. So they have to make sure it's absolutely bulletproof before it gets to council. And that has been a culture and, and, you know, one perspective. But talking to Teresa O'Donnell from Dallas, they would bring something forward much clearer and even say, you know, staff doesn't recommend this proceed. However, it's up to council to decide whether or not it does. Hmm. And that would be years faster than what we've got. So, and the thing is, we actually have the power to do this. We don't need any change from the province. We don't need any, you know, a lot of people are saying, well, we should just eliminate public hearings. I, I just don't, I don't think that's how Vancouver works. Like, I don't think people would just say, I'm going to accept neighborhood change without any input or any ability. Like that is,
1: Right.
0: I think that's very problematic, you know, to one day wake up and you've got to, 50 story tower beside your house without any way to input. I I don't think that would stand. So it's actually getting that 50 story tower to decision to council faster and then to hear all the public
1: input and then make the decision. So it sounds like you're not going to touch the public hearing side. You're not interested in that. You're more interested in the lead up to that. Well, like
0: some of it's regulated by the province, right? Or most Mm. of it is like, because it's quasi judicial because it's like a Mm. court the province actually outlines in our charter what we have to do. So at the end of every public hearing, I have to do this ridiculous thing where I make three calls for input. Like I actually have to do that. And on zoom, it's weird because nobody's on the phone line, but I still have to ask the clerk calling second time, anybody on the phone line? And they say, no. And I say, okay, one more time, anybody on the phone line? No. I mean, so that's, you know, that's like, the, this is written in the fifties. This is kind of when, all the white guys in stovetop hats would show up and you you just make these calls. But there are things the province could modernize and we're pushing for those. But in the end, you have a process where the where the development is considered, but, you know, does it doesn't meet policy. You know, is it, you know, the, the staff also go to the public to get input. That takes like 95% of the time. The public hearing actually takes less than 5% of the time. So so let's focus on the thing that's actually broken which is getting the pro I mean there's been projects that are stuck in our system for like 10 years. Hmm. Um big big rental development projects that have been stuck in our process for 10 years. I'm sure the developer the the community at large would be happy to sit through 3 days of public hearing if that was only in the system for 2 years. Right. Right, And that's really, I think, where the focus has to go is, and I think that's why Teresa O'Donnell and Jesse Edcock are the, are the folks for this job, mm-hmm. to get this stuff to us faster. And And maybe we end up rejecting more projects, but at least the investors get an answer. Like, mm-hmm. you mentioned sinking $30 million into a piece of property and then waiting for six years <laughs> and then get rejected. Like, you got, you know how many companies can withstand that kind of uncertainty we we it, it will bring a lot more incert- certainty to investors uh, and that's and that's another thing that we
1: need here yeah fair enough i want to talk about handgun violence and i'm going to go back to my friends at vancouver's awesome of course i'm a columnist there as well but you can categorize okay. me as whatever you'd like <laughs> a good fella <laughs> thank you <laughs> bob crownbauer accused you of playing politics about handgun violence in Vancouver, and I read his piece, and I was actually very confused because I thought illegal handguns are already banned here. So, no. what is the issue for city council when it comes to handguns in Vancouver?
0: Yep. Well, uh, I know a lot about guns because my grandfather was a gunsmith. I grew up around guns, and actually, I have a gun license, so I uh, I don't currently own any guns. My brother does, but I I don't have any, so I I know a lot about guns, and when um, you know, this is a huge debate when I was in Parliament, uh, like I'm the, when the Conservatives, when Harper was there, it was about lifting all the restrictions. And when the Liberals came back in, you know, it's always been a debate, so I'm very well acquainted with it. And when mm-hmm. Bill Blair, the former top cop in Toronto, uh, calls you up and says, I've got the most uh, aggressive, um, uh, you know, gun, leg- gun legislation coming through the House of Commons that's ever been written, you know, will you help? I'm like, absolutely, because having shot handguns, having the ability to own them and purchase them, there is absolutely no place in a city for a handgun. You know, my brother's a forester. Sure. If you're wandering around up North and there's a lot of bears around and stuff, you know, maybe a handgun is a good thing Mm -hmm. for you. Uh, But man, there is no reason to have a handgun in a city. And whatever, if I can, if I can pass something, you know, if I'm enabled by the federal government, which it may happen, may not happen, to pass some piece, some motion in council to even stop one handgun death, it's totally worth it.
1: So would this mean that say you have your gun license and you shoot for sport, you have a handgun and it's properly locked up based on the rules. And I, I believe the rules are you can only take it to the shooting range and back and, and it has to be properly secured. That's the current rule, yeah. And so you're saying that handgun legally cannot exist within the city of vancouver
0: yeah my understanding of i mean this still has to go through three readings in the house and three readings in the senate so that's why i haven't brought anything yet to council because the rule the the law hasn't actually been set yet um you know I've heard some chatter on the NDP benches that w- it will move to a full ban uh, that's mm. that's maybe amendments they'd be bringing forward so you know we have to wait and see what I wanted to signal early on is I'm absolutely in favor of whatever new power they can give anybody
1: to get handguns out of city so like um is there an uptick in handgun crime like is is there a particular urgency for this? Well, as I said
0: about the crime stats, like the one glaring red arrow that's gone up is homicides. I mean, it's not, you know, it's not Baltimore or or Albuquerque. It, it's, uh, you know, we, we had 15, I think, 15 homicides last year.
1: Mm-hmm. Most
0: of those are created to be linked to this, like, very strange disruption in the, in the drug uh, supply. But... um a lot of those uh, across metro will be um, hitmen coming in from other cities supplied with either uh, you know, rifles or handguns, automatic handguns, to, to, uh, to kill people, um, yeah. to, hit off, to knock off some rival. I mean, it's very kind of Hollywood sounding, but it, it's actually true. Um, and there are these uh, straw buyers that will buy a registered handgun legally and then provide it for crime. Uh, so there are there is some there are legitimate reasons to target uh, the any kind of um, possession of handguns with, within a city. Uh, so you know, again, uh, I, I'm not an expert on this. I, I know something about it, but I totally trust. Like Bill Blair <laughs> was the head of the, of the largest police service in the country uh, and is now a, a long-serving public safety minister.
1: Mm-hmm. Like.
0: When he tells me this is going to help, then I want to help him. And, and, uh, because if I could have knocked it from 15 deaths down to 12, it would have been worth
1: it. You know, uh, Sure. I'm just wondering, do we know how many private handguns there are in the city of Vancouver? Is there an estimate?
0: I don't I don't have one. Uh, you know, we we are working with the feds to try to get a little bit more statistical backing for, for this kind of action. But I, mm-hmm. I, that will probably come out through the uh, committee testimony and and, uh, you know, as this winds through Parliament, uh, we'll get more of that information. Uh, I'm not sure if I'll be called to testify or not in front of the various committees. But if so, then then that's when, you know, that kind of information would be gathered and,
1: and presented. Sure. Mayor Stewart, I love referring to previous episodes on this podcast because <laughs> this show is a never-ending conversation. <laughs> so on this podcast, episode 112, your friend, Councillor Colleen Hardwick, right. gave your mayoral term so far a failing grade. Okay. Amongst other complaints, she, like George Affleck, said that you've been inactive on the downtown east side and strathconophile. And the taxes have gone up way too much. I know that you're going to be a lightning rod for criticism, perhaps even from folks who want your job. But do you think your job as mayor so far has been portrayed fairly in the op-ed opinion media from the likes of George Affleck or Colleen Hardwick or other, you know, newspaper writers? Because I feel like there is this narrative That you've done nothing to solve homelessness or tent cities or crime, but you've continually raised taxes.
0: Huh. Well, um, I actually think the media portrayal has been pretty balanced. I mean, we have some pretty great reporters in this city. I think of like Francis Beulah, who not only is a a long-serving journalist, but actually teaches journalism. I think of Dan Fimano and Jen St. Dennis and, and others that really take the time to uh, go through, uh, you know, Stephen Quinn is a former municipal reporter. So there's a lot of knowledge and kind of, uh, Justin McElroy is, I mean, I can go through the list. I won't name everybody, but there's some really great, uh, reporting going on in the city, which we're so lucky to have. So I, I feel like I've been fairly treated. Um, but there is a
1: distinction between reporting and what you see in the op-ed pages, right? Well, again, that, that's uh, what you know,
0: I think the, the key thing to point out is, you know, these are actually political opponents writing columns. So, uh, sure. What are they going to write? This get, my opponent is awesome. No, they're going <laughs> to find things that they're going to find things to pick on. Uh, and, uh, and my thought is that if it gets serious enough, they, they step up and run for mayor. So that that's cool with them. Uh, you know, that's, that's democracy at work and they, and they should do that probably sooner than later since the election is just next year. So, um, you know, uh, in terms of property taxes, that is a council decision. I, I did bring in a, a motion last year to cap the increase at 5%. Um, and so I think that that's reasonable. Um, uh, and we need that kind of investment. So if people want investments in, in homelessness, uh, if they want to speed up permitting processes like that, all also takes investment above and beyond what we've, what we're doing now. So. Um, you know, what I would say is that's debated every year and then it's not just me passing a budget. It is a group of folks. Uh, sometimes, um, you know, the first budget that we passed some MPA members voted for it the last two, they didn't. So, um, you know, uh, so on the budget process, that's, that's presented by staff and then we decide how we're going to spend it. So, um, but I know how I can contribute to the city and that is to go off and get the investments from senior governments. So, you know, one percentage point of property tax is $8 million. So when I can go off the senior level governments and get $500 million, um, I think I've done a really good job, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. You know, if I, if I wasn't, you know, If you'd rather me be on Twitter wars with people rather than doing that work, uh, then you got the wrong guy (laughs) because I'm not going to do that. I'm going to instead take a meeting with the Minister Eby and figure out how we can, um, you know, you know, work on the downtown east side and make that a better place to live. I, I would much rather do that. So, you know, critics do what they do. But in the end, a bunch of people run against me for mayor and I'll I'll put my shingle out again uh, and uh, try to explain the best I can, what I've done to get this city through its biggest crisis in its history, which is COVID-19 and uh, dealing with all the problems that came along with that.
1: And so I want to give you a chance to reciprocate if you'd like, would you like to grade counselor Colleen Hardwick on her term so far?
0: I mean, uh, you know, I don't really like getting into that. I I think council has been pretty good overall with, with their, with the circumstances that we've been faced with, Um, you know, so I think we're all, most of us are just learning on this job. With Councillor Hardwick, I kind of look at her voting records. It's often 10 votes for one vote against, and that's Councillor Hardwick. So Mm -hmm. she has uh, a, a perspective that's, quite different than than mine um i think she joins a lot of people that would like to freeze vancouver where it is uh not bring any more supply of housing on despite like hugely prohibitive of uh, prices, uh, wants to preserve Vancouver as kind of a museum. Uh, and I want us to move ahead to recognizing that we're the global city that we are and acting like it. So, you know, I think those are good lines for a debate in the next election. And I encourage Councillor Hardwick to put her name for it. Um, and same with the Councillor Affleck or former Councillor Affleck, former anybody else that wants to get in this, because because that's what democracy is all about. It's about hashing out the ideas, and then there's an election, somebody wins,
1: somebody loses, and you move on and do the work. Rebecca Bly was a lot more mixed in her assessment of you when she was on the podcast. Councillor Bly said that sometimes it feels like you are disconnected from the day-to-day realities of Vancouverites. And I took this to mean that maybe you haven't been as out front providing the type of visible leadership that people need when it comes to things like Strathcona Park or pandemic relief. Do you think there's a public perception problem that you might have that you're not visible enough for your residents fighting for them?
0: Yeah, I mean, I sure. I mean, among political opponents, I mean, Rebecca Bly also ran for the MPA in the last election and left because of deep divisions within that party. So, I mean, it's kind of their job to criticize me. I mean, if part of the criticism is that they want me to be on Twitter every five minutes. I mean, that's not, I don't focus on that. Um, You know, I'm just focusing on the three key things that I see are the biggest problems in the city and and absolutely the the surprise to us all was COVID-19 and getting through this safe. I mean, you know, at the beginning of COVID-19 there is a huge concern of mine that this virus is going to rip through the downtown east side, right? I mean, mm-hmm. there's a ton of people with immune uh, you know, system problems there with addiction and mental illness. So, you know, I was working around the clock with the health agencies. Um, to, to make sure that we had PPE. It was actually negotiating with companies from outside of Canada to get this here quickly, working with federal ministers, having daily calls every evening. I didn't stop in the middle of that and tweet and say, hey, look how awesome I am. Like, I just don't, I don't do that. Uh, and what I did though, is have the lowest infection rate of any uh, major city in Canada, right? So, I mean, hopefully people look at results. COVID-19, we've been pretty good comparatively, but we gotta do work on housing and overdoses. And um, that's what I'm doing. Uh, maybe I should toot my own horn more, but um, you know, if, if I just walk through my week, like if people say I'm not out there doing enough, like, I don't know, I think I had, I think, I don't know how many press conferences I've had over the last two weeks where I open the mic and say any questions from anybody about anything. And I'm happy to take them and answer the hard questions. Um, you know, I had uh, zoom meetings this week with the board of trade with all the major employers in the downtown area talking about how we can restart. I had another zoom uh, round table with the, the gas town business improvement association, talking about those specific problems. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the other thing in terms of, of council every two weeks, I have a, I have, I initiated this, have a meeting with the caucuses. Uh, mm-hmm. I, ever since I've been mayor, I sit down with the caucuses and, and, uh, you know, meet and talk with them cross party to try to figure out how we can work together. So, uh, you know, if any, if I'm guilty of anything, it, it's really focusing too much and getting the work done and not enough about, you know, trumpeting what, what we're doing. So if there's a lesson I'm drawing from what our conversation is, maybe I should do a little bit more of that.
1: <laughs> and so uh, let's talk about that, because in September 2020, you announced that you will run for re-election is that a bit early? Because you, again, you had a lot of critics saying, Hey, it's, it's only 2020. We're still in the middle of a pandemic. Why are you announcing this now?
0: People asked me if I was, so I just told (laughs) them I was, I mean, that's, that's the simple answer. Um, You know, uh, and I don't know what else to say. And and so I changed my logo from, you know, Kennedy 2018 to team Kennedy 2022. Like, and I, uh, but also I'm, I understand like what really excites me about this job is the potential of the city. Like it is, you know, uh, talking to the the head of Microsoft or the head of Lucasfilm or, or, you know, or local folks that are inventing things and, and trying to get them to market uh, you know, the, the potential this city has to actually become like much more of a global player is, is enormous. And I like, it frustrates me to think that that folks don't join in that vision. Um, you know, They want to keep Vancouver as a museum, w- what it was like 50 years ago or something. And that's not, I don't think, what the majority of the population wants. They want to be able to live here. They want to be able to grow their career here. They, they want the cultural uh, component of the city to grow and become more exciting. Uh, but they also want to do it in a compassionate way that fully embraces reconciliation and, and also helps the most vulnerable people get back on their feet. Um, mm-hmm. So that's the that's the kind of mayor, and like I listen to that, that's the kind of person I am. And that's the kind of mayor I think this city needs. Uh, so that's why I'll be stepping up
1: again in 2022. I want to end the podcast very quickly on three big promises that you made on the campaign trail in 2018. I'm going to go through each one and give you a chance just to explain how much of it has been fulfilled. And I'm hoping we can keep it to about a minute or two minutes per promise. So there's three of them okay. that, you, that you made in 2018. The first is you ran on building 85,000 homes over 10 years, 25,000 affordable rental units, 25,000 market rentals, and 35,000 new condos, coach houses, and townhouses. How much progress have you made on the 85,000 homes over 10 years?
0: We are on track to hit my targets. I mean, we double-checked this this morning, um, and you'll see if you go through, there'll be a housing book that's uh, released later this spring. You will see that we, you know, the previous targets set by the city, we've exceeded those on social and rental housing. So we are on track to get there. Um, you know, I had a choice early on. Do we go back and change the existing uh targets and you know all this, that entails, or do we just get bored with the job and, and that's what I've been doing? So um, but we need to do a lot more. Uh, we need to unlock this investment that's been stuck in the in the backlog. We need to get more secure rental housing and we got to get more things like MERPS. We gotta get these uh these below market rentals built. So are you able um, to say
1: how many? units of housing are at least in the pipeline. Yeah. It's all about approvals for us. So I know that we exceeded our, um, well, I can't
0: actually tell you how much is in the pipeline because those uh, all that stuff can only be talked about in camera at the moment, but we okay. will be releasing those data uh, shortly, but it, okay. it'll, it it will, it will turn the corner for us if we can get this out, out the door.
1: Okay. You promised to bring SkyTrain to UBC, where are you with securing the necessary funding for this infrastructure?
0: Well, that's also been, uh, you know, a, a huge, a, a huge th- thing to move along. Uh, I've joined with other mayors across uh, Canada, John Tory and Nenshi, uh, Mayor Iveson from uh, Mayor Plant from Montreal, and we got the feds to commit to a permanent transit fund. So now we have $3 bucks a year starting in 2026 uh, to fund our major uh, programs. And the other thing is they've changed their current program to help us uh, get the planning done for the SkyTrain to UBC. We have signed a uh, memorandum of understanding with uh, not only UBC, which makes sense, but most importantly for reconciliation with uh, Musqueam, Squamish, and Slaveltooth. So all we have to do now is win a couple of votes at mayor's council and, um, and then we're ready to uh, get the investment uh, to extend it from Arbutus to UBC. So I'm feeling really good where we are in place. There, there is some opposition among mayors, but this is really a regional investment. Mm-hmm. You know, to get people from Surrey or Coquitlam uh, to UBC, you know, uh, it's the busiest transit corridor in Canada. It's the second most important uh, economic corridor in the province. Uh, and it's a key to reconciliation and housing. Um, MST are full partners here, uh, you know, developing lands in Jericho. Uh, it might surprise people, but the Three House Nations are now the largest property owners in uh, in, in the city. So, um, y- you know, there's so much good about this project that, uh, uh, and now I feel it's in George Heyman's um, ministerial letter. So I feel now the province is also, uh, committed to this. And, and, um, so I feel like I've really moved the needle on this a lot and we're, and it's, uh, it's going to move ahead.
1: So once you get a approval from mayor's council, is that when the funding starts coming in? Like the funding's already ready, but it just needs that approval. Is is no? There no? there has
0: to be a business case first, and that costs about forty to sixty million bucks. Okay. Um, and we do have now commitments from both senior levels of government for most of that funding. Uh, we do have uh, some assurance from UBC and MST that they will also kick in funds. We just need a, a vote from the mayor's council to decide that they want to undertake a business case, and that'll be coming this year.
1: Okay. You promised an overhauled drug policy to increase safe supply to tackle the region's opioids poisoning crisis. You've yeah. seen record overdose and poisoning deaths in BC, in the province. We know that safe supply is not really readily available despite public health orders. Have you failed to pull the levers to overhaul drug policy for the city of Vancouver? No,
0: I don't think so. I, I actually think that the system's going over, uh, you know, undergoing a complete overhaul. Uh, for example, we're on track to become the first uh, jurisdiction in Canada to decriminalize simple possession. Um, you know, a lot of people have characterized that of me sending letters to the federal government. Uh, you know, it's way beyond that. Uh, mm-hmm. We are on track to have our submission for an exemption from the, uh, from the Controlled Substances Act uh, some before June. So um, that will change a lot of stuff because, for example, uh, you know, not only will people not be arrested for the possession, uh, civil possession of small amounts of drugs, these drugs will not be seized either by police uh, mm-hmm. and it will reduce stigma. So that is, that's not a small thing to do. And if it wasn't for Minister uh, Patty Haydu, the health minister, this wouldn't be happening. So mm-hmm. I feel very, very good about, about that side of the equation. Safe supply, I also commend the feds for uh, putting in an enabling framework, uh, and the province has moved some way on this, but basically if there's um, 100,000 injecting drug users in the province and only 2,000 have taken up safe supply, there's lots more that we need to do there. So. Mm Uh, now, I don't really have any official power to do much other than, for example, uh, provide licenses. You know, we had a huge fight about um, an overdose prevention site here in uh, in Yaletown,
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, which I fully backed 100 percent and the NPA tried to kill it. Right. I mean, so there is battles within our own council as to how much, you know, we should rely on criminalizing drug use or treat it as a health issue. And I know what side I'm on. Um, so I, I do think those little things like approving, um, you know, building permits or grants uh, to, to help safe supply move along. But what we really need is doctors to get better at prescribing this stuff. Um, and, and, uh, and that's, that's part of the advocacy work that I continue to do. But look, the only metric that matters in, in the overdose crisis is, is the death rate mm-hmm. and it's climbing. So this, I think it's the, Biggest one of the biggest public health failures in the in the history of the country. I, I may say that over and over again. This is a totally preventable problem. That um, you know, cities. We I think we're pushed it right to the edge. I mean, I say we'd spend maybe twenty million dollars a year on this. If you look at uh, investments in firefighting and. Um, you know, we we have teams that go through these single room hotels to try to make mm-hmm. sure people are okay. Like, but we don't control the health authority, right? We're not the ones that can add, uh, you know, the, the the substitutes. Like, that's all federal and provincial levels, and mm-hmm. and they need to pick up their game, right? Like, yeah. this is this is this is an epidemic across the entire province, and and really spreading now across the country. And, and like, I don't understand when we have our COVID-19 case count updates, why we don't have a similar thing for, for what is uh, causing so many deaths. And I, I mean, I had a family member die three weeks ago from this. Oh, i right?
1: sorry to hear that.
0: Well, thank you. But, but it's hard to find somebody who hasn't. Yeah, no, I would agree. Yeah. And, and, and like, the biggest problem is it's a regulation issue like to be cold about it it's only how we regulate things in some some situations and some parts of it it doesn't even require any extra money
1: mm-hmm. it
0: just requires a change in the law so so that's why i'm so focused on the decrim side of it it's not the silver bullet but it will help um and then the safe supply uh you know we we push the feds and the province to, to change some of the regulations but now they got to get their backs into this and you know, we need the premier out there saying like, let's move this. We need the, we need Adrian Dix. We need the, the federal health minister. We need the prime minister. We need everybody in on this. And I think to be fair, mayors across the province agree with me that uh so, you know, I think that we've all failed and, but that it doesn't end by saying you fail and then brushing your hands and walk on to the next issue. We fail, mm-hmm. but we can't afford to fail. Like it's, so I'll continue to do everything I can. And I'm very grateful for council. I mean, I had my first motion really was to bring an overdose task force to the city. It was unanimously approved and 30 plus measures were unanimously approved. Most of those have been completed and still the death rate climbs. So, um, you know, all hands on deck here and we are totally failing this community. Like everybody is.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's a sad reality, but uh... I agree with you. I think it's a policy failure, and across jurisdictions, not just absolutely obviously, the city of Vancouver. No,
0: I mean it's it's it it. But really, it's um
1: you know the the uh, I, I understand your your levers are limited, and I'm yeah. I'm just I guess I'm asked because it was one of your key promises. So I'm trying to get the idea that you are doing everything you can.
0: Yeah, I have to help the other levels be brave, right? Like, mm-hmm. I mean, that's really what's happening at the federal level is that. Like I said to the health minister, let's decriminalize drugs here and I'll go to the wall to get it done. Like I'll lose my seat to get drugs decriminalized here. I don't care. Like I'll pull a Philip Owen. Like if you, if it costs me my job, I don't care. Just decriminalize it and get safe supply rolling. And if it means that I'm no longer mayor, that's okay with me. Like, let's get this fixed because it is terrible.
1: Mayor Stewart, more than halfway through your term. And this is the last question. This is the call to action. What is your pitch to Vancouverites that you've kept up your campaign promises and that you are still the person for the job in 2021, 2022, and beyond? What is your call to action?
0: Well, a mistake would be to just run on a record. Um, Even if we get through COVID-19 in good shape, even if I get the housing, you know, more or less turned around, even if we begin to see the uh, overdose uh, death rate drop, I mean, what people are always, they're always forward looking and they're saying, what are you going to do for me next? (laughs) And I think that is the key challenge is to get these top issues that people want dealt with under control, but then show how our city can grow in a way that includes everybody. Mm -hmm. And that will be a a prime focus of what I'll be putting forward in 2022. Um, But Right now, uh, I'm not, so much focused on the the, the long-range future. I'm just focused on what are three incredibly tough uh, crises that I feel like we're making some headway on. It's just not always immediately apparent to people. So, um, you know, my pitch is that I'm the guy for the job here uh, until somebody better comes along. <laughs> so, and I don't see anybody right now that would be able to pull together Ottawa Victoria and a very uh divided city council and
1: and deliver what's being delivered here. Sure. Do you have a call to action to add to that? Where do you want call people to, action to go? For citizens? Yeah, where do you want people to go? What do you want them to do?
0: Oh, well, I mean, co- we have to get through COVID-19, so so uh stop like breaking the rules thinking <laughs> it's it's okay. Oh, it's okay if I just go off to this thing uh you know this weekend. It's not. like case counts are climbing Uh, other cities are in total lockdown again like we Mm -hmm. do not want this to happen because you know our economy can only take this for so long so the call to action is heed bonnie henry keep keep distanced don't do those little sneaky things that people are doing that's spreading the, the cases around like and and try to help other people try to keep folks positive and focused on on the future and if they're in trouble really try to help them out as much as you can and that's really the it's it's a COVID 19 call to action that everybody's heard but it, it's it is our top priority and what we have to do for each other
1: absolutely mayor stewart i appreciate your time i hope it's not another three years before we have you back on the podcast yeah, and hopefully you will, we'll be anytime. able to do it in person again i want to bring this up because i think it is important. I started this podcast in the summer of 2018. At the time you announced that you were going to run for mayor of Vancouver, I had nothing. No website, no podcast. (laughs) I just emailed you through your website and said, hey, I have this crazy idea. I'm starting this podcast. Here's why I've lined up so far. Could I have an hour of your time? You actually called me. We chatted and without even knowing what you were getting into, you said yes. And since then, the podcast has grown. I mean, I look at the guests. Five provincial party leaders, including two BC premiers, so many cabinet ministers, multiple Juno award winners, Canada's newsmaker of the year. (laughs) I'm now at CKNW and Vancouver is awesome. The podcast regularly breaks into mainstream news and that's because of the guests. And you were one of those guys who didn't have to do it. And I'm sure it did not affect your campaign one way or another, (laughs) but you did it. And you helped me build that base of credibility. So everything said and done, I think that speaks to your character. And now that I do have a larger audience, I do want people to know that about you. Oh, that's very nice. Thank you.
0: And credit to you. Yeah, thanks. And, and you know, it also shows what people can do with, when they have imagination and what the city enables people to do, you
1: know, so good on you. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you for being here. And I look forward to chatting again. Okay. See you later. People. That was a long time coming. A reunion three years in the making. Of course, he is the mayor of the city of Vancouver. He is Mayor Kennedy Stewart. And I am Mo Amir telling you that in a city where you can be anything, be colorful. Peace.